You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Mrs. Harper, there's no harm. She can get along very nicely without you. You're not the kind of person I want be to see. I hope you're not judging by my temporary surroundings, Mrs. Harper, my apartment. I know the kind of man you are, Mr. Darby. I've gone to the trouble to find out. She said I, I had a promise never to see you again. That, that you weren't interested in me at all. All you wanted was money. Take a look, a little excitement. Ex-art dealer murdered in Balboa. Well, what do you know? A murder right over on the other side of the highway. And a murder right here in Balboa. Some character by the name of Darby. These are letters which your daughter wrote to the late Ted Darby. Price is $5,000 cash. Ted, darling, I just wasn't alive until I met you. But you came like a fresh wind blowing through my stuffy room. I don't know, Ted, if I can make up my mind to do what you asked yesterday. I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to leave. Would you like me to call the police? I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mrs. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Well, hello again. And also back in the booth is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. We are continuing November 2019 with a look at Max Ophel's The Reckless Moment. Released in 1949, the film tells the story of Lucia Harper, played by Joan Bennett, a mother who's out to protect her family from the forces of evil, including Ted Darby, a swindler who's making moves on her 17-year-old daughter, B, short for Beatrice. After Beatrice accidentally kills Darby, or he just accidentally dies, Mrs. Harper goes to great lengths to cover up the crime, which leads to more and more trouble. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film, so if you've missed it over the last 70 years, please be warned. So, Colin, when was the first time you saw The Reckless Moment, and what did you think? The first time I saw it was probably 10 or so years ago. I was passing by... um the late lamented Kim's video on St. Mark's place. And they had a box of um, bootleg DVDRs out front for sale that had just been transferred from VHS tapes and the cover art had just been squeezed. And this was there. I had never heard of it, but I adored James Mason. I adored Joan Bennett and I had seen Max Ophel's caught before, which I loved. So I brought it, took it home it was a barely, barely watchable copy, but I absolutely loved the movie and um, waited several years until I could find an import DVD from the UK with an actually watchable print. Is that the indicator? Yes. How about you, Sam? Years ago, I had this blog and I would do these kind of... They sound insane to me now, but I would do these like really comprehensive review series where I would take anywhere from 75 to 150 films in a particular subgenre and try to watch and review them all, which was a really great way of watching things like film noir titles I had never seen. And and so I did this huge like 150 film noir series and one of the things on my list was this film and I would say two of the things I fell in love with the most that I had never seen or didn't really know anything about before I did that series was The Reckless Moment and Caught and I just was so blown away. 
this is a first time watch for me. I had never seen this film before. We talked about Max Ophel's, I think it might have been last year, the year before. We discussed the earrings of Madame De, and I just realized, wow, I really don't know very much about this filmmaker, but I loved the earrings of Madame De so much. I was so impressed that he made 27 movies, I think, and he lived such a short amount of time. I think he it was, what, 55 years old? And he had this wonderful, wild career. I mean, I've talked before about so many filmmakers who came over because of World War II. And then some, every once in a while, a filmmaker would go back. And he was one of those filmmakers who went back. And those last few movies that he did were just absolutely spectacular. And then diving into the ones that he made here in America during that short stint uh, from World War II up until... I think this was his last American film, 1949, before he goes back and makes La Ronde. And this was, as you were saying, Colin, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous film and such a compelling narrative. And I love that it mixes, even though this is, you know, Noir Vember, I could easily say that this is such a melodrama and it really makes a lot of sense that one of the special features on the uh, indicator disc is Todd Haynes talking about it, like the king of melodramas. And he even makes a mistake at one point and calls the director uh, Douglas Sirk instead of Ophuls. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. I'm sure he's so used to talking about Sirk. And there's that staircase, which is very Sirkian that appears throughout the movie. Oh yeah, and it's like a it's like prison bars. Yeah, the oh. last shot. Oh. I mean, that is one of the most sort of exciting overlaps. Those movies like Caught and like The Reckless Moment and sort of I think also like some Hitchcock movies like Rebecca and Suspicion that you could describe as being kind of a women's film or like a women's melodrama. But they also have these sort of gothic thriller elements and film noir elements. And I just love that they all, especially this film, they don't ever like delve into the supernatural or anything like that. But they make the home such a place of like menace and terror in such a effective way. Did you guys have a chance to read the blank wall that this was based on? Yes. I couldn't get over... The narrator. It, so it's the blank wall, the, the, the book that this was based on, or I guess it, it was it serialized in Collier's because it felt very, very serialized with the way that we had the ups and downs of the narrative. Like every single one, every single chapter seemed to end on a cliffhanger. Or it was uh, Ladies Home Journal. That's right. I think he does a good job of giving you that same feeling at the ending of certain scenes without having it sort of smack you in the face too much like <laughs> like an actual film serial it was uh, elizabeth sansay holding who wrote this it's a third person sometimes it's like a close third person and then it's a first person and i couldn't get over it's so much in lucia's head and her justification for everything and i was very curious how they were going to translate to the big screen well, and it's hard for me to imagine anyone other than Elizabeth Bennett playing this character. Like, just like, can you imagine somebody 
in the film who's maybe, I, I don't want to be negative about it, but like a different type who is maybe a little bit more of, plays more of a victim character or somebody who seems more passive. It's like she makes, the, did I call her Elizabeth Bennett? You did, but I wasn't going to be a dick. I've been watching a lot of Dark Shadows lately, and it's like I know her name is Joan Bennett, but when I look at her, I think Anne Elizabeth. But I, I feel like it makes her anxiety, like her bringing her sort of like ironclad will to the role, it makes her anxiety and that kind of like sense of inner monologue and justifying everything way more believable for me. Like, I really can't imagine. I mean, Caught, and I promise I won't bring up Caught every other sentence, but Barbara Bel Geddes is stars in Caught and a very different character type, but she's very sort of like wistful and she's trapped there and she needs to be rescued. And like Joan Bennett doesn't need to be rescued by anyone, but it's like her internal anxiety is causing all of these problems and I think that just translates so well. Well, they do such a smart thing of having her take control of the narrative. Even though we have this voice of God narration at the beginning who never comes back, I kept thinking that it was going to be a character inside of the film. He sets things up and kind of tells us about how Mrs. Harper is taking her car and going to Los Angeles. You know, we, and we don't know why exactly, but here she goes and she leaves the family behind. And it's like, we get shots of almost every single family member in that opening and her leaving them. And then we see her taking charge and going into this place. And we don't know why she's there. And it's this very low seedy motel. There's people, very loose morals there, but she, again, like I said, she's taking charge and confronting this Ted Darby character right off the bat and saying, you need to stay away from my daughter right now. So we really get that steely nature that you're talking about with the way that she is taking control, which is funny because later on in the film, you're right. She's never hysterical, but there are so many moments where it feels like the, the, the pressure is mounting and that she might crumble if she was less of a strong person. One of the things I love about that opening shot of the car going is it establishes the fact that she is on the go. And throughout the whole movie, she's always busy doing something. She has some problem to solve. She never gets a moment to herself. And even when she's in the car, like her son's in the boat yelling, hey, mom, where are you going? And she never gets a moment away from the family. And then even when she's in the car with James Mason the roofer pulls up next to her when she's in the house. Even if the kids aren't in the room, you can hear them yelling for her. And at some point, James Mace even says, do you ever get away from your family? And she's just like, no. <laughs> Every time I come back to this movie, I just love how that opening shot just establishes, you know, the fact that the whole world is falling in on her. She has no time to herself and she can't have a moment to catch, catch her breath. And things are only about to get more hectic. And I think that's a heck of a lot to do in one shot. And later on, she has that line that I'm definitely paraphrasing, but she has that incredible line where she says to him, and I think it's during one of their car scenes, she says, you have no idea how a family can surround you. And I love that he 
Afield takes these sort of like film noir tropes of, you know, surveillance and people always watching you and kind of paranoia. And instead of making that be about the police following someone or criminals on someone's tail, it's like that comes, that sense comes from her own family in such a believable and depressing way. Like it's just, it's so grating. It's like you feel so bad for her. I mean, are the cops even in this version of it? Briefly at the, uh, by the water. Like, you see the lieutenant make a little, like, press conference thingy, I think. But we don't have a Lieutenant Levy like we do in the story, who's yet another force who's kind of breathing in on her. But instead, like you were saying, it's the bad guys who we'll talk about. But, yeah, it's the family. And the family is always there. The family is always observing, always questioning. And I'm very surprised that she actually has... I can't really say an ally, but she has someone who she can kind of share a secret with, with B, because in the, in the story, she has no one, maybe Sybil, but really no one. She is completely alone and everyone is against her, even her own family. And the way that her daughter B and her son David are always on her and questioning her and want to know her motives for all of this stuff. And she's doing her best to protect the entire family, but they are giving her not an inch. It really is surprising to me, or I guess especially the first time I saw it, how ag- how against this sort of beloved kind of family dynamic that started to be in all kinds of TV shows in the 50s, like this idea of the nuclear family as being this kind of all-American paradise, this film is so against the family. But at the same time, it's such a, like, a real kind of motivation for her to do the things that she does. It's like they're... it's like not not just her specific family members but just the environment of the family is so toxic there's another big difference between the story and the movie which is that the movie is coming out in 1949 and so the husband tom just like the story he's missing and he never comes back to the story in the in the story in the in the holding story he is away and he's in the uh pacific theater so he's in the the navy or the army and he's uh you know fighting the war and there are all of these letters and she feels very compelled to write to him always and in this one tom is still away but he's is it he's a, a builder of some sort they make mention they don't really come out and say it too well but i think he's going to Berlin to talk about a bridge or something. So he, again, is this missing figure. And it's funny how large his presence looms, even though he is never seen in the entire story or movie. He's supposed to be there to sort of help rebuild war-torn Europe. So it's, it's kind of an extension of what he's doing in the source material. But I always thought that was interesting an interesting choice, his absence, because it's sort of an inversion of the typical gothic trope where the mother is always absent, and this young girl has to deal with kind of an oppressive or restrictive father or male relation. And here, it's 
he's absent, but it's almost like her idea of the right thing to do is what's the real over overpowering, like repressive force. His being missing also adds this pressure. Like I need to keep all of this stuff together while he's away. It's like, if he comes home and things are screwed up, he's going to get angry. And that's the last thing I want in the entire world is to upset my husband. So she just is, keeps trying to do the right thing, even though for a while it feels like every time she tries to do the right thing, it just keeps turning out wrong, or there's other forces at work that she's unaware of. A lot of these American films of his all kind of share this theme of being a persecuted exile. And it's amazing to me that he could do something like that so well, in a film that's about somebody who's not an exile. I mean, she lives in a house full of her family, but it's like the only person she can relate to is James Mason. And I mean, how can you blame her? But we'll we'll get into that later. I do want to talk about Ted Darby. And I'm curious too, if, I mean, the, the names in these uh, stories always um, are interesting to me just to have, Darby and Donnelly, and then we've got Ted and Tom, and I guess we've got David in there as well. So we're hearing a lot of the same consonant sounds between all of these male figures. And I guess the other male figure that we have is her father, and I think it's her father in this. I want to say in the remake, it's the husband's father, but in this one, it seems like it's her father. I think you could probably do a pretty interesting examination of live-in parents in kind of thrillers and film noir from this period. But they're all so inept. Like, maybe maybe not all of them, but it seems to me like a lot of these sort of parent figures. And I mean, even if you think about something like Hitchcock's The Lodger and the sort of 40s version of that, it's like the parents are not they don't take responsibility. They're not particularly good role models. They're just sort of fumbling along. And it seems strange to me the first time I saw this film that she's the one who's supposed to be the head of the household and her father just kind of acts like another child. So interesting to me that they, the changes they made to the father character from the book to the movie, because in the book, he's much more compelling in the murder of Ted Darby. Or is he? Because that's the thing. The, I like that she thinks that her father was the murderer for so much of the book. Yeah. And she will do anything again to protect him. So she's protecting B because she doesn't want these letters to come out because we find out soon that there are letters written between Ted Darby and B. But then she doesn't want anything to happen to her father because she's convinced that her father murdered <laughs> Ted Derby. And it's like, wow, okay. And no pressure, no pressure. No pressure whatsoever. Is it just me or is a lot of it all taking place in her head? And I don't mean the actual events. I mean, she takes what would be kind of a crappy situation And because of all the sort of like pressure and expectation and need to take care of her family and need to keep the family together and things running smoothly, it's like her anxious thoughts 
and her feelings of guilt and responsibility that she's not good enough sort of snowball into this situation that like earlier we we mentioned that the cops aren't really a big presence in the film and so it's not like the law is really after her it's more what she thinks is about to happen i'm reading another um holding novel right now called the innocent mrs duff (laughs) that's a great title (laughs) sam exactly what you're saying um that's the way that she structured this book it's about um mr duff who is a grade a scumbag but just through little thing by little thing it's all in his head these little anxieties so he keeps making mistake after mistake which he then decides to solve by drinking more and more gin and then more and more scotch and he's just he winds up just hiding bottles everywhere but if he had just confronted the problem head on there actually there wouldn't have been a problem he's the problem he's just an asshole but it, it it does wind up becoming another like accidental murder, just like in this. So she's she's definitely reworking, you know, some plot and character motifs. I mean, I guess the reason she's so upset about these letters between Ted and her daughter are that they would tie B back to Ted, and then Ted's dead. But more than that, more than the murder thing. It feels more like an embarrassment, more like a societal embarrassment that these letters, I think, are supposed to be pretty saucy. And that seems to be more of the cause of distress than this whole idea of them being written by a dead man. In the novel, kind of what you're talking about, Mike, this idea of like a a scandal, this sense of shame is much more pronounced. Because my read on the novel was that they were barely getting by as sort of like a middle-class family and she's already struggling to make ends meet and all of their children's families, the children's friends' families are much higher in class and they're trying to, you know, pretend to be something they're not, which is yet another pressure on the mother. Yeah. The whole idea of, of her having the neighbors that they keep being compared against and that the neighbors have a spot at the, uh, the boat club and they're inviting the father to join. And the father's like, well, it's really not that much money. And it's like, you can barely afford anything right now. They make such a big deal of her trips to the grocery store and Sybil, the maid's trips to the grocery store. And that was one thing I really appreciated about the book as well was Sybil not wanting to go to a particular store in town because the guy there was a complete racist and wouldn't sell chickens to this person because she was black. And that's one thing that's missing from the movie, but I do appreciate that Sybil is still black in the movie and that she is probably one of the most competent characters in this entire film. Because there are so few competent characters, <laughs> I feel like it's thrown thrown into sharp relief. <laughs> and she's got those crazy, like, big shoulder pads and stuff, and it just looks like she's ready to take on the world with those shoulders and stuff and just plow through anybody who's going to, you know, threaten the Harper family. It kind of surprised me the first time I saw it that she actually is sort of given some support and that it that's who it comes from. Like, I think it's, once you start to notice those sorts of elements, it seems very obvious that this was based on something written by a woman. Like, it just has a sort of very depressing yet 
authentic feel about the pressures of motherhood and running a family. And I, I definitely agree with what you were saying earlier about how this whole thing about the letters and anyone who writes a letter in an Ophiel's film, like they're going to be in trouble at some point. It seems to be more that she doesn't want a scandal to get out. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but it also seems like she doesn't want this kind of public acknowledgement that she's a failure as a mother. You kind of get the sense that she feels responsible for B having this affair and she feels like it's all her fault and if she had been more competent and had broader shoulders, as it were, like that never would have happened. If she hadn't let B go to art school, then she never would have met Riff Raff like Ted Derby to begin with. Art school is always to blame. <laughs> they probably smoke cigarettes there. They probably do those beatniks. I was surprised that here in the movie that B finds out about Ted Darby drowning and dying and all this because in in the story she does not she doesn't really know about him until the story gets out until poor Lucia finds the body and what's the most natural thing to do in the world call the police no you take the body you put it in a boat and you drive it across uh, the the lake and you plant it someplace or here she p- leaves it on the beach and yeah, she hides the body, you know, just like one of the worst things that you can possibly do. But again, she's doing it all to protect the family. But at least with this, B understands why she's doing it. And B is, well, in this one, She's not necessarily an ally. If anything, she's like a source of potential mistake. Like she has to also monitor what B is going through and wants to get rid of her almost as soon as possible. Wants to send her up to a place in Lake Tahoe and just ship her off so that she doesn't screw anything up. Isn't it B's suggestion to go to Lake Tahoe in the movie? You're right. I think it's, I'm confusing it with the book where she wants to send her off to Aunt Grace or something, someplace upstate New York. Yeah, in the book, the mother wants to send her away, but in the movie, the daughter wants to go away. Yeah, there's this very weird mother-daughter tension that reminded me a lot of something like Mildred Pierce, where the daughter is just kind of terrible. Part of me, I mean, I'm sort of unforgiving of characters like those, but... She's just such an ungrateful brat that, like, you kind of want her to at least be arrested or questioned or you want something to happen so that she's aware of the gravity of the situation and stops just sort of throwing these tantrums. But because her mother is so, you know, feels so guilty and is trying to take care of everything, you never really get the sense that she goes through that awareness. I hate the son too. I oh, hate God, David yes. so much. <laughs> well, he like chides his own mother for driving and uh, taking the boat out and it could be dangerous and that he needs to replace the spark plugs and that he bought those spark plugs out of his own money and he wants 50 cents for them. I'm just like, kid, your mom is barely making ends meet here in this household. She doesn't, she shouldn't be paying you 50 cents for fucking spark plugs. They're both telling her what to do as if they think they know the score. And 
They do not know at all. I do love B's introduction um, when uh, Joan Bennett comes home and, you know, it's like B's in her private bathroom. So once again, you know, the mother has like zero space to herself. And then there's B saying, mother, you think you understand people, but really, but you really are terribly old fashioned. You couldn't possibly understand a man like Ted. The way she delivers that line is just so bratty. It's so perfect. Oh, yeah, because she'll believe Ted Darby in a heartbeat over her own mother. Of course. And that's one of the most effective things about the film is that you have these two mansplaining children who are just giant brats. And it's like, I think what makes the film's conclusion so tragic is the fact that you, well, at least I, you genuinely want her to leave her asshole family behind and run away with Donnelly because he's the only person who is nice to her and treats her with respect. Oh, totally. I mean, we'll get to it when we get to it, but B's reaction to the whole thing is more relief. Like, Oh, I'm okay. Not like, Oh, my mother's okay. Or like, we're all going to be okay as a family. She is totally selfish and she has reverted exactly to who she was before. Yep. No awareness. No and no kind of character arc, no change. So it's like you get this horrible sense that she manages to save the day and no one's going to be held responsible for Darby's death, but nothing in her family life has changed and everything will go back to the way it was. I found it interesting, too, that they set this whole thing around Christmas time because that just seems to add to the pressure. You know, I guess it kind of reminds me a lot of like uh it's a wonderful life and just that christmas is supposed to be this joyous time but all of these pressures come with it and you've got the damn kids playing the piano and the girl is missing zuzu's her pedals and all this stuff is going on and then you got your fucking uncle who loses all the money and you're going to be fucking destitute and here it's not necessarily as insane as that but it is still bad and then you've got here's you know father bringing in the christmas tree and it just and and the husband isn't going to be home for christmas and it just adds more and more pressure to all of this stuff as well that here it is all set at christmas time it's a really genius way to sort of underline this idea about family expectations and appearances and things having to be this perfect way. Well, you mentioned Donnelly, and let's talk about Donnelly. This is the James Mason character who is, in my opinion, right up there with Joan Bennett, one of the most interesting characters that this movie has to offer. I mean, he's also really hot. Oh, yes. Especially when he's doing that Irish accent? Good lord. Oh, I know. I mean, this, I think... And I think it's sort of a shame because I feel like people who are maybe not as into cinema and maybe haven't seen some of these older, especially 40s, like late 30s films, think of James Mason as this sort of older man with his gravelly voice and, you know, he's James Mason. But when you see him, and to me, this kind of period in the 40s is the highlight of his career like he gave amazing performances throughout but he just plays some incredible roles 
during this time where he almost is this like Heathcliff type figure where sometimes he plays outright villains and sometimes he just plays these kind of more complicated figures but I mean he just he's so compelling you kind of have the feeling that like he could do anything and you would still want her to leave with him I mean to go from the odd man out to this film both with those great Irish accents it just like that is a hell of a double feature speaking of accents since have you heard his southern accent in cold sweat I heard it in uh, Mandingo. Thank you very much. I haven't seen that. Pretty intense. It's a lot. <laughs> I, I I have a soft spot for Cold Sweat. I, I rewatched that last night. It's I think Terrence Young made this one, and it's uh, one of Bronson's European films. It's uh, I think shot in France. He's married to Leave Ullman, um, and then James Mason and a bunch of. Uh, other people break out of prison. They had all been in military prison together and they were looking for Bronson because he owes them a debt. Um, and they want him to like motorboat them like across the border. And like Jill Ireland is involved somehow. Of course. It's crazy. It's wild. It's Bronson. And yeah, James Mason's accent is amazing. And it's, it yeah, sounds it, incredible. <laughs> I adore the movie. It makes me happy. Anyway, that's off topic. When you said he wanted them to motorboat him, I was thinking yep. something else completely. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I was like, I wait, motorboat what exactly? <laughs> I apologize for my naivety. I'm just an innocent young boy watching Charles Bronson movies. So Donnelly is the most fascinating character to me because he starts off as a villain, and then he changes throughout this movie. It's something that you don't necessarily see. And I I know that there are extras on the the Blu-ray talking about James Mason as being a homme fatale, so taking that femme fatale and throwing it on its head. And I can kind of see, if we were to gender swap uh, Lucia and Donnelly and... You know, this man in trouble, and here comes this evil dame who ends up having a soft spot. Like, okay, that, you know, all right. I've I've seen that before. I've seen Gloria Graham kind of change her tune in movies. But here, having this male character change his tune in this movie is very surprising. You don't expect that, and you don't expect him to come in and be this suave scoundrel and then slowly start to realize that, Lucia is a great woman who is trapped in this horrible situation. And then when he starts to do these nice things for her, and he does nice things right from the beginning, though they come in very small patterns and then start to get bigger. And I will say, like, right off the bat, when he gives uh, her father what I assume to be some winning horse uh, picks right off the bat, then it's like, okay, he already is starting to work with this family and then that's really i think seeing her trapped by the family and his lack of family i think helps turn him into a different person one of my favorite details from the book that didn't make it into the movie i think b is um, berating her mother like, oh you can't be seen in public with this man she's like i'll do whatever i want and then when she's behind closed doors she starts putting on makeup she's 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 getting turned on by this I mean, can you blame her? No. <laughs> he also looks damn good in an overcoat. 
but have either of you seen The Night Has Eyes? I've been trying to. I can't find a good copy. I'll have to, if I still have mine, I'll have to send it to you. But The Night Has Eyes is, it was one of the first sort of younger James Mason films I saw. And he plays kind of a similar type, but the film is definitely more of a gothic thriller. It's kind of like these these two young women traveling through the countryside get derailed by a storm and they're forced to stay at this like manor house of, I think he's a writer, but he's very tormented and very James Mason. And they, they come to believe that maybe he's a psychotic killer, but he does this sort of similar about face where he becomes more sympathetic and, and of course, as you're watching it, you're like, yes, this is James Mason. Everyone's going to fall in love with him by the time the film's over. But I, I love how he's able to make that type. And, and The Night Has Eyes is much more over the top in a gothic melodrama sense than The Reckless Moment. But I love how authentic he's able to make it. Like, you still can believe that he is this hardened criminal while at the same time understanding how he has a soft spot for a family and why he starts doing nice things for her. Like, it doesn't seem ridiculous. I think one of those moments, too, is when he goes into a drugstore with her and she's going in there to use the phone and the pharmacist mistakes them for being a married couple or a a couple that's together and that he ends up buying a gift for her, which I thought was very nice as well. And just that it's almost like he's trying it on. He's trying on the whole idea of what would it be like to be this respectable man here with this beautiful woman. One of my favorite parts of that scene is when he's buying the, the cigarette holder, the grocer says, Oh, I can't tell if the list says two or three cans of tooth powder. Let's make it three. And it's sort of like being like, yeah, let's cheat a little bit. You know, let's charge her a little more. And he's trying to be complicit in ripping her off. And I, I mean, I think that only adds sympathy. I mean, in terms of like James Mason falling for Joan Bennett, because he realizes, heck, she can't even trust the grocer. Everybody's out to get this woman. Those are my favorite scenes in the film. Weirdly, I mean, I love melodrama, so probably not weirdly, but just those moments of them running errands and doing domestic things together, like their chemistry on screen is so good. And the characters complement each other so well that you, you can see what it would be like if they actually were together and you wish that that could happen. My favorite line is when, um, it's right after the uh, the roofer pulls up next to them um, and then drives off. She looks over at uh, James Mason and says, "Like we sh- I told you we should have taken my car. And it's like, wait, you're telling your blackmailer, like, I could do this better. You should have listened to me. I just thought that was, like, really charming and funny. Not only does she have to worry about being blackmailed, but she also has to worry about her social standing and thinking that people are going to think that she's having an affair with this guy, and that can't happen. Yeah, but anyone who looks at James Mason probably is going to assume that they're having an affair. Out of jealousy. 
Right, yeah. And that's one thing, I mean, the kids start to suspect that, at least in the story. It's just like, what are you doing with this man, mother? And you've started to change when you're around this man. And dad's away. How dare you spend time with this man? And you don't have a chaperone or anything. And it just, that becomes yet another pressure on this poor person. And she can't tell them this man is trying to blackmail us and ruin our family, and he wants this obscene amount of money, and I can't even buy meat for the table. And he's now trying to bestow gifts on us, and he's sending us roasts and hams and all these things. I'm talking about the story, just so don't look for this in the movie if uh, folks are listening. Uh, but, you know, it's like, so now she's got even more troubles, you know? just It keeps going and going and going. I think it's no coincidence either that in the, the in the book version you meet uh, Donnelly's partner. You meet this guy Nagel, and he's the first threat to come to the door. And then Donnelly comes, and then Donnelly's like the nice guy. He's like the good cop to the bad cop, though he's not a cop. And then in the movie, they did a smart thing, I think, by leaving Nagel off screen, and you hear about Nagel and he's almost the same as the Tom character. Like you hear about him. He's an off screen threat, but finally they come through with Nagel in the movie that he is an actual real physical threat. So there's something that I want to get back to quickly when you were talking about in the book, how he sends, he sends them like hams and all these extravagant things. And Something that I spend a lot of time thinking about with Ophiel's films is the way he deals with objects, because gifts and jewelry and any kind of luxury items are usually really heavily weighted in his films. Like, they get people into trouble. They often have these sort of... They kind of set off this sort of chain reaction of events that leads to something tragic happening. And I mean, you know, you have the scene in this film where she's trying to sell her jewelry to kind of come up with this blackmail money. But in the film version, he doesn't give them like you said, you know, when you're watching the movie, you should not look for <laughs> the Christmas ham to be delivered. But he it's like his gift giving is different in the movie than it is in the book. And it almost seems like for Ophiels, when a man gives a woman a gift, it's almost always illicit in some way. It's either a lover who's giving a romantic gift or a husband who's giving some sort of gift that says that he controls his wife or he owns her. But the gifts and the things that he gives her in The Reckless Moment are all these really kind of small, practical things that seem to be more genuinely romantic than if he, you know, sent her a whole bunch of roasts or bought her a fur coat or something along those lines. And I just oh, have always found that so fascinating with the way Ophiel's places such importance on objects in in his various films it's like one of i think one of his unifying themes and it just is so interesting how it plays out here like this idea of small domestic interactions is more romantic than any kind of big gesture that's such a great point totally agree i like the way that you say his name by the way 
because the first time I ever heard his name, it was pronounced Oh Fools, and I was like, no. <laughs> oh Fool. That's oh, not fool, right. Oh Fool, no. <laughs> this is not an Irish gentleman. His name is not Oh Fools. <laughs> Darby Oh Fools and the Little People. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I like that his name is not spelled the right way in the credits that when he was making these American films, it was, they dropped the H and it was opals. Yeah. That poor man. I mean, when he wasn't being uh, kicked out of countries and sort of being forced, I just, I feel like that exile. And I know I talked about this a little earlier, but I feel like that exile theme pops up so much because he's always kind of being forced or at least asked to change who he is. Whether he's he's losing the H completely or whether he's missing his umlaut. I mean, the poor guy couldn't get a break. Yeah, I had the great pleasure of a couple years ago seeing his son, Marcel, give a talk in this really tiny lecture room. It was probably like 20, 25 people. And he talked a lot about his father's work and sort of how this idea of, you know, surviving the war is what led him to make his documentaries. But he was sort of saying that he felt like that idea of being in exile and always being on the run and spending so many years under a hostile government, or at least a government who viewed you as a foreigner definitely had a big impact on some of his father's themes as well. You and I talked on the the Lost One episode. I mean, it's yeah. it's a similar story, the whole idea of Lore being in Germany and then coming over here and then really trying to embrace the American way of life and then eventually going back and making the Lost One. I mean, just that, that immigrant story of so many of these filmmakers and actors and actresses, it's just amazing all of the different trajectories that their careers could have taken and what we managed to see in all of these different people and what happened to them. People spend a lot of time talking about how film noir is such a uniquely American thing. But to me, and I, I know that like I'm not the first person to ever think or say this, but to me, it's not even about being a distinctly American thing. It's about being part of a time when so many people were exiled from home and so many of those exiles, whether they're writers or directors or actors, came and made these films about being persecuted and exiled. And that is one of the things that I find so fascinating about film noir, I guess, is that it's not, it's hard for me to see it as sort of a national movement it's it's kind of like this international melting pot movement that just happened to be by a world war forced into one place at one time. And, you know, what would it have been if that wasn't the case? I want to talk about the whole idea of the shopping list, too. This whole thing, you talked about how... Um, the uh, the grocer or the pharmacist can't read the shopping list. And then a shopping list, a different one, I believe, ends up coming up as being this possible downfall to her. 
And I just find it so ironic that of all the things that could trip her up, that it's a shopping list that they find under the body. And it's like, oh my God, the most domestic thing you can possibly do is make a shopping list. And here it is. And this might be what screws her up. I also found it interesting, too, that in the book that she has a different reaction to someone else who gets caught for the crime, who gets pinned the crime on. Um, she immediately goes to, oh, my God, this is bearing false witness. This is a sin. I cannot commit a sin. And it just becomes this whole thing of her torturing herself more with this idea of a guy who might get accused of a crime that he didn't commit that she thinks that she committed or is at least covering up. In the movie, the shopping list is she finds it at the end. She does, which okay. is great. Okay, cool. I just was make, just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yeah, but she thinks that she's she's screwed up because she can't find it. Oh yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, and again, that goes back to what you were talking about, Sam. That anxiety in her own head. You know, she manufactured this own sense of like evidence and guilt. Yeah, and that's one of the things that strikes me so much about this film is. In film noir, the most probably common protagonist type is this sort of guilty, persecuted, usually male character. And it's hard for me to think of another female protagonist in film noir who is as guilty as she is. I mean, usually they're persecuted but the persecution is coming from somewhere else, like from a husband or, you know, someone, some other way that they've gotten themselves into trouble. But here it's, it's like 80% coming from her. It's, it's impressive how much she torments herself. I can so relate, you know, she's her own worst enemy. Yep. Overthinking. Yeah, any, anyone who overthinks a lot will love this movie. And yeah, you were talking about the the idea of sacrifice, and James Mason does that femme fatale thing, that, that last moment of redemption, because he's the one that comes in, and when Nagel shows up, he ends up taking care of Nagel, taking care of as in killing, and then pretty much, I don't think it's the necessarily the fickle finger of fate, I think it's almost like the censorship board uh, as far as him <laughs> having to die at the end of this. And he ends up taking the blame for stuff. So it, it, it inverts things again with him being the person that, you know, takes the blame for everything and really redeems himself by protecting her by, by throwing himself, you know, like the, the, the whole idea of this car crashing. And then he's just like, Oh, don't worry. I'm all set now. And he has this very emotional final scene, which you would expect again, like a Gloria Graham or some other really bad girl who's trying to redeem herself to have. A lot of these movies, especially some of the film noir titles that could double as women's melodramas, like the, um, the Humphrey Bogart movie, the two Mrs. Carol's comes to mind they they have things about them that are great, but they also have a lot of issues and sort of problems that you could point, like narrative problems that you could point out. But this film, I just think it's so perfect. It's, I love it so much. 
I've talked before about the idea of hands and arms and them being kind of a stand-in for phallic symbols. I don't think it's a coincidence that he ends up getting his arm stabbed in this fight with Nagel and that he can't really use his arm in the rest of the movie. I think there's got to be something Freudian about that. And it, it seems to be sort of related to this idea of his masculine physical power. And he now has lost that in a very kind of literal in your face way. I, I agree with you, Sam. And he kept telling her that throughout the whole movie, Oh, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And in the end, like, you know, Nagel still got to her, you know, he's, I think he probably felt a sense of failure. Everybody feels like a failure in this movie, basically. <laughs> I just want to give him a big hug. But you can't because his arm is all busted. A side hug on the other arm. Pat on the back. It'll be all right, Donnelly. It does have, to me at least, a similar ending to um, It's a Wonderful Life. This whole idea of the family being reunited at the end and them getting the phone call from the missing father, from Tom, and her breaking down on the phone. But in this instance, it isn't the whole, like, oh my gosh, I am the richest man in Bedford Falls. <laughs> this is, oh my god, I just dodged such a huge bullet. And her saying, like, we miss you terribly, I don't necessarily buy it. Because like we were saying, the handrail right in front of her makes it look like she's in prison, because she is. She can't get away from anybody. Now she's stuck back in this prison. And like you were saying, I really wish that she had had the opportunity to run away with Donnelly. I think I would have been much happier for her. That scene right before she gets on the phone, when you see her alone in the room on the bed, just bawling, is mm. such a heartbreaking scene. It's like the first moment of privacy she's had for the entire movie, and she's just so distraught. And she's finally letting all of her emotions out that she's had, you know, to keep bottled up in order to you know, keep the family together. No offense to other actresses, but especially around this particular period, watching Joan Bennett cry is not like watching anyone else cry. Because you get the sense throughout, I think, most of her film roles from this period that... She's such a strong figure and doesn't get swept away with her emotions like so many female characters stereotypically do, that when she finally does break down and cry, it is just gutting. I want to talk a little bit, too, before we take a break, about the camera work. And that was one thing I remember specifically about the earrings of Madame De was the idea of these longer takes, these very intricate shots. And that is here in force in so many areas of this film. So many, so many amazing shots. Oh my god, it is just gorgeous. It makes it easy to watch over and over again. I mean, I think the same thing applies to a lot of his films, but the sort of trio that he made at this period, Letter from an Unknown Woman, Caught, and The Reckless Moment, they all have so many beautiful staircase scenes that you could do a video essay and just watch it on a loop. And they're just <laughs> beautiful, but so oppressive. Staircase jail. <laughs> One of my favorite shots uh, 
is at the end of the movie, um, Joan Bennett's on her way home. She gets out of the cab. Um, and as soon as she walks through the gate, um, there's a 180 degree pan as Sybil jumps out from behind the bushes and is like, Nagel's waiting for you. And your family is really mad that you're late for dinner. <laughs> it's like two really horrible problems, both of which she does not want to deal with. One is one way and one is the other. And which one is she going to deal with first? Well, and it's ridiculous that they have to take equal weight in her life. Yeah, you would think that the boss of the blackmailer coming to visit would be, you know, pretty bad. But in this one, it's like, which is worse, the family or the blackmailer? Which I think, uh, as we keep bringing up, says a lot about how her family life really is and about how horrible her family is. <laughs> like, just give them all to Nagel. <laughs> Trade them in. <laughs> I'm sure you could sell B into white slavery. And I'm sorry, but she's supposed to be 17. She doesn't look 17. No. She was 24. I can see why that art dealer was going for her. The other scene I wanted to bring up in terms of camera movement is the scene where she meets Donnelly, which is just extraordinary. Um, you know, it's it's in the living room. And for the first time in the movie, she is dead still. And there's one of these, like, and now another like 180 degree camera turn as he's like walking around the room and he's like closing all the doors, you know, it's as if he owns this place and it's his first time being there. And it's just, it's such an intimate space and it feels very invasive the way that he's, um, you, you know, manipulating everything and trying to, you know, close things off. But then in the middle of that, her son runs through the door it's kind of like, wait, she can't even get blackmailed in private in her own home? Right. <laughs> I say it's an odd moment of comic relief in an otherwise extremely tense scene. Well, and there are so many of those moments where something happens, some sort of typical film noir thing happens with, you know, her trying to hide the body or trying to deal with the blackmailers. So many times, someone from her family either interrupts her, or criticizes her, or tells her how to live her life, and it—it it is. I guess I didn't really think about it exactly that way, but I think you're right. It is comic relief, but it, in sort of an absurd kind of black comedy way, where, like, yes, it's funny that she has to deal with this, but it also makes you want to tear your hair out. Like, give the woman a minute. <laughs> Oh, I totally agree. Those are some of the most, I think some of the most like real darkest moments and some of the most excruciating to have to watch. Because we know what she's going through and her family cannot give less of a shit. No, they're just so myopic. Like, it doesn't even occur to them that she could be dealing with anything beyond their needs. I love one of the lines that B says to her mom, um... She says, the difference is when you're 17 today, you know what the score is. <laughs> it's just like, she says it with such typical, like, teenager, like, oh, I know what's going on. You don't know a damn thing. It's like, nah. Teenagers say that today. Um, I'm sure they will continue to. It's totally believable, you know, coming from B. But, oh, my goodness. Joan Bennett knows the score much better than she ever will. 
you kind of wish that Joan Crawford would show up and slap her or something when when she says things like that. <laughs> yeah, those moments of the dark comedy, they really remind me of Hitchcock and like those weird moments when something would go wrong, like, you know, forgetting your tie in the back of the potato truck or something, you know, just like, it, it's just those dark twists where you're just like oh shit you know what's the next thing that can go wrong and this it's yeah it's very i guess this movie reminds me somewhat of uh shadow of a doubt this whole idea the domesticity that is in danger and that young charlie is the only one that knows what old charlie is up to and she can't do anything about it they both have the same sense that this kind of idealized domestic suburban life is really just a thin veneer that can be cracked at any moment. And and I mean, you know, somebody like David Lynch has made an entire career out of exploring that, but I feel like those two films really, really show you how kind of insidious it was even in the forties in such an effective but such different ways. You mean if you were to tear the fronts off of houses, you would find swine there? All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Lutz Bakker, the author of Max Ophel's In the Hollywood Studios, and we'll be right back right after these brief messages. <laughs> The New York Times calls Ovid.tv a haven for indie gems. You can watch hundreds of feature films and documentaries on Ovid.tv from directors such as Claire Denny, Deborah Granick, Shohei Imamura, and Chantal Ackerman. Most of Ovid's films are not available on any other service. From now until December 6, 2019, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head over to www.ovid.tv, that's www.oviddot.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. The offer expires December 6, 2019, so act now. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios i'm dave hunt and i'm one of the co-hosts for super true stories a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free i'm axel kohag and the other co-host film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside dave and i look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing poorly faked ghost stories and everything you wanted to know about core production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV. 
and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I wanted to ask you, though, if you don't mind, the story of him coming to America, because that's always so fascinating to me, the wave of, of immigrants that came over. When did he come over? He was the last of the major European directors to come over. Okay. And he came over in August of uh, 1941, oh, wow. and he left in August 1948, so he was here for a full eight years. He fled the Nazis uh, very presciently uh, in 1943, right after the fire of the uh, Reichstag. Uh, Hans Wilhelm, uh, the, the screenwriter that he was working with uh, for many projects in those years, including Liebelei, said, why why are you leaving? (laughs) Max, he said, you know, he knew what was going to happen. He knew what was happening. And he he tried to talk him into leaving, and uh, he didn't. And then uh, he got out in time, but but he should have. He knew he should have left earlier. So, and then the whole thing with uh, going to France and starting his career there with other like Fred Slung was there, arrived roughly at the same time. Seward Mack, uh, all these people uh, rushing in almost at the same time and then having a lot of negative reaction from the French film industry because they felt they were taking... And the same thing happened when he came to Hollywood. So he be- he became a, a quite an active anti-Nazi operative They're producing a radio, show, radio program. Uh, uh, Hitler counts his uh, victims in his dream, being the most famous one, and that put him, of course, put him on the on the Nazi pursuit list. So he had to get out of there as soon as the the Germans were uh, coming into the country, and he fled to uh, to Vichy, France. Ultimately, down to Marseille. Ultimately, he he was invited to go to. Uh, a theatrical uh, tour to Switzerland. He directed some plays there, but he had to leave there, which was a great place for him to be negotiating with uh, coming to Hollywood. Now, much easier to, to communicate. He uh, left Switzerland reluctantly and went back to have to produce all. They almost made a film there. They started shooting it. Then it, there are the usual kinds of problems, and it didn't work out. But uh, it's an interesting project, and so he went back to Vichy, France, and uh, by hook and by crook got, got this his exit visa and, and, and all the other documents that were, that were required, and then fled to across the Pyrenees to uh, Spain through Spain and then to Lisbon, and took the last. Uh, the last ship, the ex-campion out to New York. And uh, the degree of, uh, you know, I have, I read uh, my colleague Helmut Osper's treatment of it, which differs somewhat from mine, and I based much of it on uh, what I heard from Marcelo Fols and uh, and from other sources uh, that had him uh, and go uh, across the, the mountains, basically on foot, you know, flee across the mountains, like, like many of the uh, 
emergency rescue committee people dead. And so I sort of thought he, since the ERC was involved with his flight, with his escape, uh, I thought that that was, um, as is described for other people, you know, going on foot across the mountains until they could find some mode of other transportation. But that may not be so. I have to check that again. Getting to Lisbon and then uh, catching that um, that steamer to New York was quite an, uh, quite an adventure. Like I said, he got to New York at the, the last of the bunch and to Hollywood, and uh, which was a problem you know, in many ways. Yeah. So. Had he negotiated something? Did he have a job lined up for him when he got there? He was dealing with the best possible agent for that situation. That was Paul Koner. Paul Koner was extremely helpful. He got him a, a sort of a, a job offer document that looked very official and, okay. you know, but it wasn't really all set the way it seemed on the, on the document. And right. so he, he did and he, he advised him and, and Opal saw him as his savior, you know, and then he got to, to uh, Hollywood and one of the first things he did was to go see Conor and Conor basically told him, nothing I can do, you know. And so he he did help him to find another agent. So he was able to to find some uh, per, some things he could pursue. He was supposed to see uh, 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 go to MGM as to see L.D. Mayer, and uh, whom he had met in Paris in in thirty six. And Mayer had made him an offer to come to Hollywood, and Ophuls thought about it and said. Uh, things are going pretty well for me right now. I'm going to stay here. Right. And the mayor was not a forgiving type. Yeah. And so he wouldn't even see him, you know, when he showed up at, yeah. at the office. But it was not as desperate as people make it out to be that, you know, you hear this, that, that he was unemployed for for five years or six years and starving, you know, they were down with bad periods in there, yes, but he had always, he, Max was always working on getting the next assignment. He was not to be deterred. He didn't go, give up easily. And so uh, he did what he had to and what he, what he found most of all was writing projects. And so he uh, he learned how to be a Hollywood screenwriter from the ground up with one of the best pra- practitioners, Howard Koch. So uh, Howard became his friend, and uh, that figured into his getting the job for for a letter from an unknown woman because the, the two had collaborated before on various assignments. He always uh, always had something going. And then uh, Preston Sturgis in forty late fall of forty four gave him the gave him the assignment for Vendetta. From there on, he had a steady paycheck, and he thanked Sturgis. Always thanked him for that, even after they broke up after the fiasco. And they did get back together in Paris when, when Sturgis was also there in the early fifties. And then the, the first real job. Being the exile, which he got through the intervention 
of uh, Siotna, who had had a big hit with the killers. And so he, uh, he interceded on his behalf, and Fairbanks knew also fools, because he spent a lot of time in England. He was a really liked it in Europe, produced stuff over there. He got that job, and, and, uh, and, and all, all the stuff that went, the punishment that came with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. What happened between him and Preston Sturgis? You said that there was a fiasco. Uh, as a director, uh, Sturgis couldn't stand watching somebody else yeah. direct. And, uh, and so early on, he started, uh, in the first two, three days, he started interfering. And uh, Max went in there and did a really elaborate crane shot uh, of the arrival in, in Ajaccio. The crane moved over the whole deck, and there's action in there. And it was a fantastic setup. And one wishes one could find it somewhere. Preston, who had really taken his time with uh, Diddlebach, uh, the sin of Harold Bitterbach, uh, all of a sudden talked about, you know, punctuality and getting pages and, and all of that, you know, just a complete turnaround from what he got for himself. By the third day and by the time Hughes uh, saw the rushes in his sickbed, he had actually started to interfere in, in, in directing, and then uh, the Nofolds just got to say, uh, action and cut. You know, and then because he was contracted, he had a contract for to be director, and it was really miserable. This production was very was watched by the industry. It got a lot of coverage, and everybody knew what he was going through. And so, uh, you know, he got the support from the community, and the Seattle functioned in that in that sense. And, uh, and they were friendly anyway, so from from, from France. So from there on, you know, you had the, the quick succession uh, of the of the two Universal films, um, direct continuity uh, from one to the other, which is what exactly what Max liked. He liked uh, he didn't like to worry about the next about the next assignment, right. and so he you know, got right into Rampart's production of Bill Dozier. And, uh, which, uh, using the same personnel, basically, you know, the, I, um, my point is that, uh, uh, there couldn't have been a letter from an unwoman without the exile before that, because Max learned the ropes, learned the equipment, learned how to operate with an American crew. And all of that with the exile and had his fights with the editor and with, with the front office. Having learned that he already had, was developing strategies, and then continued doing all the way through his career, he he was able to to start making letter from an unknown woman very very efficiently, but you know all the way through had various problems uh, with the editor, uh, with Dozier, who was looking out for number one for Rampart's production and. And his and his wife, you know, and so the, the demand for coverage uh, became uh, a big deal. Uh, and the shooting uh, retakes, uh, shooting close shots of uh, of Joan Fontaine, and to a lesser extent Louis Jordan. It was a whole 
different situation there than he had experienced with Fairbanks. And uh, the Fairbanks situation was mostly about Ophel's not wanting to provide coverage in a different sense. Like, he would have long strings of, uh, of long mobile takes and provided no coverage, so you couldn't cut them. And the editor was very resentful, Tetje Kent, very resentful of that. And so, and he had the Ernest Nims, who is a supervising editor, who supported him, and uh, uh, they had the support of the front office, you know, and uh, and the production executives. It was a, a di- very difficult situation. Then by didn't of good fortune, he didn't have much of a gap between the end of Universal. And I should say that um, that he had a contract. He would. It was actually a contract director with Universal, with a contract being shared between Fairbanks Productions and Universal International. That didn't didn't stick. You know, he uh, they would not renew it. And it was, uh, it's one of the bitterest moments. In his career, Hollywood career, when that happened, but he uh, it was lucky that Wolfgang Reinhardt had the was producer uh, for Caught. Wild Calendar was the original title based on the novel, which they kept some names, but not very little else. He made a transition to that, and that had its own challenges, but uh, he had more freedom there than for any of the other shoots. There was one incident of interference with a so-called rabbit shot where Mason gets up to grab his bag and to go to help the girl who has botulism, turns out. They wanted to... uh, Charles Einfeld, who uh, had started with David Lowe Enterprise uh, Productions, and Charles Einfeld was the, the charge you know, he was in charge of the of the of, of Enterprise, and David Lowe is a much more relaxed, laid back, serious type. And uh, but Einfeld gave him a lot of problem with not wanting to shoot cut to a close up when he on the realizes it's botulism, you know, and he said the action of his getting up will show. But why do we have to cut into a close up? You know? And Ophel's finally said, okay, you know, he didn't want to make a huge deal out of it. What he learned at Enterprise, working with the uh, Lee Garms and Morris Rosen, cinematographer, key grip, dolly grip. Morris Rosen had invented uh, the crap dolly for Hitchcock on the Paradine case. And they had used it famously on uh, rope, of course. Whole Fools had the, had the the grip crew, the the dolly grip crew that was used on uh, on rope. I mean, it's a huge advantage uh, to have crew that could do those those shots. And if you the shot with Jimmy Hawkins in the doctor's office, remember, and then the camera just keeps on going. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Jimmy Hawkins described that how they shot that to me. It was interesting, and how few takes it took after they had rehearsed oh, wow. it. Yeah, so um, with all the signals and uh, it's a very complex thing to be doing. 
So he learned how to continue learning on a, on a quest that he had already started on the exile, uh, which was to shoot what I call, in my writing, expressive long takes, which is basically uh, substituting camera movement into different position, different angles, different distances from the subject. It's with a it's substituting for cutting. And what better instrument could you have to, to learn how to do that than a crap dolly? And as it happened, the, the Studio 5 at, at Enterprise, Raleigh Studios now, I understand, this is a new stage where the floor was perfectly smooth. And later on, Carl Freund was shooting Lucy, the first Lucy show in there, where he pioneered the concept of having, having three dolly-based uh, television cameras. So, and that was one advantage, was that, that it was perfectly smooth. He didn't need tracks for, right, for right. it. So, so he, he came out of, the, out of that experience producing that kind of uh, long take and also combining it with what I call the rhythmic long take, which is what you see so much in La Ronde and uh, Le Plaisir, where and, and Madame Der, which is where the camera just seems to be gliding and floating on and on, not doing those kind of maneuvers to manipulate camera height, subject, distance, and angle, and also combining expressive long takes with rhythmic long takes in very effective ways. And all of this, you know, you see marks of all of this as early as Libeli and especially La Signora di Tutti when she did in Italy. It was there, it was nascent in, in, in the European films, but actually as it, they moved towards the later uh, 30s, there were pressures for for him and directors in general to adopt the kind of typical Hollywood continuity. And so, if you look at Salah de Mar, it's, it's relatively conventional in terms of uh, editing. And and so, when he, he came to Hollywood and he saw Wells and he saw Preminger and uh, Goulding, Edmund Goulding, we saw we saw them doing long fluid takes. You know, he want, he was going to get back into that game, and so he uh, he he did, and uh, and he learned with a, a, a Dolly group crew, Les Khan, Lester Khan, who had come up with John Stahl in uh, at Universal in the thirties, had became a premiere crane operator with a number two crane, uh, a Broadway, famous Broadway electric crane in, from 1929 uh, being the first, the number one crane. So he had a universally had a studio that was into camera movement early, early on. They were they pioneering uh, all of this equipment. And he had uh, Arvid Wooden who, um, who did, uh, who, who built the crane, naturally enough called the wooden crane, and uh, it was perfect for Max. It was it was like so they now call the jib, and you had you could move the the crane itself on tracks or on a smooth floor, and then you you could spin the arm around three sixty up and down every which way. If you want, look at the uh, 
the letter from an unwoman scene in the opera, it's actually shot from a wooden grain at its full extent getting up to the balcony level. So it had that much range. They budgeted that for four days when he uh, in for letter from an unknown, for exile and he never let it go. So he was worked that was one of his major camera basics basis uh, on that film and then continuing on into a letter from an unknown. So it was terrific, and then and the the situation at court in that respect was also for learning for using camera movements very effectively. It was was very very good experience for him. And his wife said that uh, at one point in his introduction to his autobiography that it is almost getting dangerous from him all this playing with technology. You know, so that got to be. A little less prominent at uh, in the making of the rector's moment, uh, but nevertheless, he had. Uh, you now I'm getting ahead of talking about casting and selecting the crew. He had a crew uh, that, as I recently found out, I didn't know that when I wrote my book, that had uh, recently done knock on any door the first Santana production with Nicholas Ray and uh, most of the most of the key shooting lighting crew had been on knock on any door and then had did the reckless moment and then moved on the next year to do the uh, in a lonely place of course yeah there are some wonderful shots in the film but it's not really the kind of camera movement style that, that Max has. Uh, um, so, well, you see some scenes are lit in a similar ways, and uh, he's, uh, Ray was a good director. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about the crew. I'm curious, what was his relationship like with James Mason? James Mason became a friend of of his. Uh, the sympathetic uh, right from the start. He was never concerned with getting close-ups you know, there's, he was much more in service of the film than wanting to be a star, right. you know, and, and all the implications of that. He was supportive with uh, in the making of um, of the um, of Cot. You know, in that one case I mentioned, where they they wanted coverage uh, to take advantage of to heighten Mason's star attraction by going in for a close-up when it really wasn't necessary in order to tell tell the story effectively. And uh, he was was on Max's side. And uh, what he said when we talked about that uh, really applies to a lot of situations in the making of The Reckless Moment uh, is that Max was very persuasive and in a very calm kind of way. He knew how to talk to people and to give a little and to negotiate and to be very persuasive in his point of view and not give in. Earl Bellamy, the the, um, assistant director on The Reckless Moment, said Max had great stick-to-itiveness. He knew what he wanted and he he stuck to his guns. He He wouldn't give in very easily. So um, he had that quality, and and, uh, and and Mason said it was a great lesson for him to learn because in his 
years in England, he would just get all upset and stomp out and make a big show out of it. And he said Max was a good role model for him to try to tone it down and be more reasonable and reason with people rather than put on a, a scene. How did the reckless moment come to be? How uh, was it uh, discovered first the the story, and then they said, "Okay, let's let's well, do this." Wencher bought it, bought the the novel, the novel Blank Wall by Elizabeth Sachsey Holding in uh, 1947, and it, the novel deals with a wartime situation. Right. Uh, on the East Coast. And so what they had to do is change the location to the West Coast, uh, one, and two, switch the action effectively to a post-war era and, and all the things that came with the, uh, the post-war era, right. you know, the returning um, soldiers and, and all this. is a whole, whole different game and, and, and the whole impact it, it had on women you know, and they're participating in the labor pool in, during World War II, and all of a sudden now that's, you know, no longer the case, and it's good to go back to the kitchen, you know. So so all of these factors uh, impacted, and so he had a series of writers uh, that he considered, some of them low-budget writers from Colombia, uh, Leopold Atlas being uh, one of them, but also David Bodine, who was a uh, higher level, but uh, the person he really wanted was Sally Benson, who famously did Meet Me in St. Louis. And, and, she, and dealing with family was her metier. She, you know, various aspects of family uh, life and family interactions. And uh, as we see in that film, and she also did uh, a series of stories along those lines for the New Yorker. Uh, they were called Junior Miss. Ultimately, the writers, because she couldn't do it, that she recommended were two young writers uh, working for CBS Radio doing Junior Miss. She thought they could bring the same kind of touch, that familiarity with the family milieu and the way families interact and move in a confined space and all of that, but they could bring that to to the reckless moment. And so what Max ended up with, for the first time in Hollywood anyway, was two young writers, and not only two young writers who had the experience and knowledge of functioning in, in American families and writing about it, but also who had never written a screenplay before. He could be their mentor in that respect and also really draw on their knowledge to enrich the screenplay. And uh, Robert Soderbergh and Hank Garson, Henry Garson, uh, the two of them, I I guess they must have been in their early 20s. He called them boys. They, uh, Soderbergh said it was like a love affair, the first six weeks of working together. He took him home for, to his house for dinner. He went, he took him to see his movies and they just got along famously. You know, they, they, they produced a good, uh, produced a good first draft. And then it turned out that Wanger was not happy with it. And neither was B.B. Kahane, 
who was uh, Harry Cohen's representative okay. in the picture. They had a, a conference, a script conference at the end of the, when they reached the first, first complete draft by, by the trio, Opals, Soderbergh, and Garson. And the, you know, Wincher and agreed with Kahane that something had to be done. This was not as good in some respects, especially structurally, as the script that they liked, which was Mel Dinelli's script. He was a writer of some note. And, uh, and so they decided, with the participation of the boys, mind you, it was not the typical nasty situation where they kick out one writing team and replace it by another. The boys got to be there to the very end. And, uh, and so they made contributions to, to, to this uh, amalgamation or adaptation drawing on both sources, the Meldinelli script and their, on their own. But it was touch and go whether they were going to, hopefuls would have liked to, to go with the script that he had done with them. And it is what they wanted, what Wayne Scher wanted, was to hire the two young screenwriters to bring in certain touches, subtlety. He was a big, Wayne Scher was a big fan of the, the new British realism, especially Brief Encounter. Uh, David Lean and, and uh, Carol Reed also in other film. So that was one of the things that informed Wanger's thought and also the fact that Wanger planned already to become part of the Runaway to Europe movement, uh, Runaway production. Uh, one of the ways that films adapted to the, all of the consequences uh, in 1948, to the Paramount decrees and to the encroachment of television, which was first, you know, really starting in 1948 to become a big factor, and uh, and so he he already had connections in in Europe to go there as his next endeavor uh, after the reckless moment, and more about that later. He wanted to introduce. Uh, what I could just call the subtle, t- realistic touches that the, the these young writers could bring to it into the film. And that's why he got them in the first place when Benson couldn't do it. That Ophuls had that European background and might possibly fit into his plans to go to Europe. Uh, and this could be a long-term relationship not just like a, a, the what it appeared to be at the very beginning, sort of a quick dodge to replace Jean Renoir, whom uh, Harry Cohen priced out of out of the competition. He said he wants he wants too much money. I'm not going to go above forty thousand, and he didn't even, didn't even give Max forty thousand. He got he got a raise over what he got for uh, caught. And it shows you how everybody, the executives all knew how how much somebody made on a certain film. There was shared knowledge. And Max never caught up, you know, in that game. And they all took advantage of it. Even even his benefactor, uh, Fairbanks, you know, he was perfectly happy to have him direct this uh, epic film, a high-budget, long-shooting schedule film that... Uh, Bryce, it was laughable compared to somebody like Howard Hawks. Uh, you know, it's, it was not fair. But you know, he had no—he really had no choice. The the writers 
and and Ophuls started right at the as soon as he as, his start date was uh, January seventeenth, nineteen forty nine, and they started writing immediately. Uh, as it happened, uh, uh, CBS was almost across the street from from Columbia Sunset, and uh, so. Uh, they worked. They did their two, three hours at at the studio, and then they they'd meet him in the early afternoon and work with him a few hours, and and then they made he made they made some changes. He made some introdu- He introduced some elements, and then they went home. And uh, Ophuls and his secretary, a woman named Ruth Martin, who was much more than a secretary. She was. Uh, they, they, she even got a trailer on the stage. That's how important she was. She, she entertained them, and uh, and just was willing to, to put in the, the hours and the hard work to to make it to make it go. And uh, so, whatever whatever he had changed in the afternoon, she would have it typed by the typing pool, and the next day that'd be a clean copy of the screen of the script. To date, uh, every day. So um, all of this, as I said, until went along very well with with the with the writing team until the reintroduction of Mel Dinelli after the script conference. They then produced another another first shooting script by March first, and that was supposed to be the starting date, but they had to. It was postponed by several days after that, so that was not uh, the, the go date. How about the female characters? Because they are so crucial to this story. I think um, I've already said Francis Williams uh, was very sympathetic towards him, uh, with him. And um, what she said one thing uh, that, that sort of fits that question that uh, over that 13-day period of working uh, on the Harper House set, where and with everything ordered in the sequence, in script sequence, not necessarily uh, continuous time, but uh, you know, in, in the series that the, that, the, that the scene appears in, in the script, and uh, so having a, a kind of a, a group of people. And a set of technicians and a, a set of technology remained the same over two weeks. And it made very much for an ensemble spirit that they all really liked. And, uh, and she said, and Francis Williams said, and it wasn't just the, the cast either. It was everybody. It was the, it was the technicians were part of this ensemble as well, and they all sort of regretted when it when that period right. period ended. So some of the, some of the really interesting scenes, of course, are are in that were shot in that period. Yeah, there's that amazing shot of Mason when he's turning off the lights or turning on the lights and closing doors and kind of setting this whole stage for them and yes. that long take is just yes. gorgeous. Yes. That shot is interesting in many ways. For one, it's it's an outstanding example of an expressive long take. And 
Robert Soderbergh said Max would bluff in the screenplay and break scenes down shot by shot, and there were 15 shots for that scene. And then he went in and did it all as one long take. Right. You know, and when you look at it uh, frame by frame, you realize that most of the shots that are in the screenplay were worked into that continuity of flow of the camera. And so and the intensity of, um, of that scene with uh, Lucia discovering what he's after and trying to respond and threaten to the police and, and so on. It's, it's beautifully lit and, and, and all the movements. And it's, it's a wonderful scene. Right. It's almost like a fencing match, the way she tries to parry with his uh, yes. threats. Yeah. Yes. And then he moves over to that light and he turns it on and we cut turn it. Right. Yeah. We were particularly fascinated by the comic relief almost when the sun comes in and it, it makes things worse and it makes them lighter at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I guess, yeah. You, yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. It's like a dark humor to it. And then he's going on and starting to play his ukulele. Yeah. So I wonder what happened to David Bear. I never heard of him, about him again. I did hear in, in California at the last Ophuls conference that uh, the boy in Letter from an Unknown Woman is now in his 80s and living in Arizona. I have a, a text from an interview with Laure Lurier, who, was, who worked with him in Europe and was married to Eugene Lurier, the famous set designer, uh, in talking about his relation, exactly about the relationship with his women and how women artists and, uh, and how it stayed the same in all the interactions she could see, observe, on Vendetta with um, Faith DeMarc, with Maria Montes. He was always gentle and respectful, uh, attentive, empathetic, but with no hint of a, any kind of sexual connection, sexual relationship. She basically said he was wonderful with, with, with women, act, with actresses. Uh, you can see that in, in all of the relationships, in, 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 in the, even Joan Fontaine, and she was, who was, of all the ones uh, that I talked to and heard about, uh, who was, had a negative reaction in some ways, uh, and accused him of being like Fritz Lang. Uh, he could have had a cruel streak, which uh, everyone else uh, rejects. He really, I mean, he was well known for being for being uh, a good women's director. Well, tell me a little bit more about the production. You talked about the thirteen days where they were shooting all of these interiors, and I'm curious about the rest of it. The ability to do that goes back to pre-production, where. It was a situation quite contrary to what he considered ideal. There's a letter where he writes to John Houseman how what what a wonderful time they could have making independent films together. 
you know, a screenplay ready four weeks before the start of production was one of the things he mentioned. <laughs> and uh, it was this was not a good time for independence because the uh, the insecurities that the paradigm, the paramount decrees introduced into the industry also affected the independence. So, so independents were having a hard time getting financing. Uh, Wainshire couldn't get financing for, he tried all the other studios, he he could not get financing for the film and ultimately he got um, Harry Cohn's okay uh, with very strict budget and shooting schedule limits and the dictum that Eddie Sierra, uh, who was the second assistant director on the film uh, and later become a famous uh, production manager, production executive, very uh, important man. But he, he was just a second assistant, and he said, when Columbia brought in a semi-independence and put up a lot of money, he says, we pay, we tell, we do our way. That was that was the motto. Okay, so now go, we're going back to Carrie O'Dell. Uh, Ophuls and the boys were writing the screenplay. Carrie O'Dell simultaneously was working on the sets. And so instead of the usual writing the screenplay and then breaking it out down in terms of the settings required and then building, there was a direct connection with Carrie O'Dell, whom Ophuls got along with really well, and the writing team, and he built the set to go with the scenes that they were writing. So an ideal situation where the sets reflect what's in the the script, so you don't have to, you know, make changes later, and and everything fit hand and glove. Coincidentally, when Ophuls hit that, that period of working in the setting, he had fallen in the house setting, he had fallen behind a little bit. Uh, There's another scene we should talk about where that first comes into play and also talk about the power structure in in regards to that scene, which is the scene where Lucia comes back into the house from having been out in the boat house with a flashlight looking for, you know, trying to figure out what went, what happened. In the house scene, Ophuls was behind schedule a little bit. He wanted very hard to catch up because he had learned when making the rec- the um, caught. And this is something he also talked to John House, told John Houseman in a letter. He said, I learned in the making of caught that you can, if you work quickly and efficiently, then you can get away with things that otherwise people are going to object to. And so one of his goals, you know, one of his light motifs in this in making the reckless moment was to always stay ahead of schedule and always make things go well on the set, being ahead on the schedule. Hank Garson even told me that he would deliberately work faster than normal to get ahead on the schedule so then when he dropped the bomb about something really special he wanted to do, right. he would have a better chance. 
he looked at his at, at the shooting script and he figured out ways that he could make the action flow continuously instead of shooting a scene in the living room and a scene in the hallway and a scene in the kitchen. He made it all. He made small changes to the screenplay, to the continuity, and the camera would just follow them. She uh, and B go back to the kitchen and uh, instead of having a scene in the living, at the part beginning of the scene in the living room, then in the, then one in the hallway, and then one in the kitchen, it all, he has them move on through, exit towards, and, and then enter into into that little wall, walled off, or screen windowed off uh, part of the kitchen where they have this private talk. Uh, when the father comes in with the with a Christmas tree, uh, he has it. He has him come in in such a way that he, they didn't have to change the tracks. Right. So they saved set up time, and you know, and and incident after incident with the things that he could do by thinking it through. And that's another thing that that uh, Blankenhorn, the, the the location manager, told me that um, Max always knew what he was going to, and he always came in prepared, and he knew what the shots were, and it, and it all happened very nat- very quickly and naturally. And, and so he did with this, and uh, at the end of the 13 days, everybody was happy, and uh, they were several pages ahead of the, of, of the, of the pace, uh, of, the, of the schedule. And it was an artistically, and as an as an experience for the actors, it was just wonderful. So, how did he fall behind? You were talking about her coming in with the flashlight from the boathouse. Early on, after they came back from location, uh, basically uh, the, the the shooting schedule started out with uh, the harbor, the Midtown Hotel. Uh, First, the entrance, her entrance into, and then, and then, uh, uh, Shepard Strudwick's comes in down the staircase, uh, and then they shot Donnelly's uh, very late in the, in the screenplay, uh, crossing through uh, the whole place, and then the Shepard Strudwick, uh, Joan Bennett scene, where she confronts him about the relationship. They started trying to shoot. Uh, Lucius Entrance coming back from L.A. It was Bernie Guffey's first experience with a with a very long take. Okay. He had never faced anything like that before, and he said he wanted to go all the way where she gets out of the car and then comes down, passes David with his wreck of a car, and then comes down the hallway and then goes inside through the side kitchen door. And then in through the kitchen, brief interaction with her father-in-law, and then through into the hallway, up the staircase, past uh, Francis Williams, and up to the second floor, all in the continuous shot. I said, well, it's very difficult to to do that. And ultimately what they did is show us the beginning of her getting out and moving down the garden path, they separated that. Even though I guess they might have shot it in the studio, they separated it, 
at that point, and then we see her enter the kitchen and go through the kitchen, brief interaction with Henry O'Neill, it cuts on her movement through the kitchen door. Uh, and they, they did that, cutting on the kitchen door thing, because Ophuls could see that coming back after they came back from location and starting the whole thing over again would be a difficult proposition. And so he just decided to you know, give in a little, and as he often did, uh, to save the day and to and to be happy himself and, and, and have the people he had to work with uh, be happy. Shall, shall we go back to the, uh, to the scene where uh, Lucia comes in? It was, uh, as you probably recall, beautifully staged scene of her walking through and then coming in and then and ending up across from B uh, and Lucia faces towards B and all we see is from behind the side of her face and Ophos left it like that. What happened subsequently is that a gentleman named William Bloom, Bill Bloom who was a lower echelon associate of B.B. Kahane. B.B. Kahane was uh, a vice president, uh, executive vice president, uh, directly working with Harry Cohen. B.B. rarely showed up on the set, but he watched the rushes religiously and came up with tons of criticisms. Many of them... Uh, about the um, very similitude, I guess you might say, the uh, how about something, how something would work in terms of the story. So, for example, he criticized uh, Joan Bennett. Joan Bennett's wearing high heels and dumping the body in the marsh and said anybody, any cop would immediately see that this was a woman who had brought the body in. And uh, and th- things like that. He was quite astute about those kinds of things. And they were, you know, they were good suggestions. But he also uh, asked for things that would interfere with the quality that Ophuls was and the continuity of atmosphere that Ophuls was after and the flow of things in the, this milieu, in, this, in the atmosphere of this house. And Max did not want to provide coverage for that. And there was, there was correspondence between Bloom and Kahane and maybe even some other people in that they uh, Bellamy said there was uh, five days into into five after they're coming back uh, there was this bus starting to build around the studio, studio about this artsy European director going you know uh, out of control and uh, and so and somebody else said that there were things going on that I I did not know about, but I could tell from the whole vibe that was that people were not happy about, about what was going on. Just to show you the flow of the 
from the top, from Cahain to Bloom to Wanger, and the interaction with Wanger. And, Wanger, and he sent a note uh, several days later saying, are you not going to provide coverage for this? And the secretary uh, asked him, should I return, uh, answer this message? And Wanger said, no. And so Mason said that Wanger acted as a kind of buffer between him and uh, between Ophuls in the front, uh, he, he provided a shield for Ophuls, and Ophuls did not hear about all his idiotic complaints. It was good. And interestingly, that goes back also another buffer situation where Ophuls kept his relationship with the boys to himself. Uh, he did not let them get exposed, except ultimately at the story conference, he protected them, he shielded them from not only the studio folks, but also from Wainshire. You know, it was just the three of them working together. Ophuls had to, at that point, really watch his step and try to speed up production a little bit and and, uh, reduce the chance for interference for that. But they were... Wenger was quite adamant that he was not going to take that you know, from, uh, from Cahane and Bloom. Ultimately, was The Reckless Moment a success? No, unfortunately not. It was a success. And if you read British accounts in the film and reviews of the film, uh, it was a success in, in England. Uh, because Mason was a big star there uh, because the social criticism of American society that's implicit in the film uh, didn't apply to them. So it was quite a... And, and, and there was banter. Uh, Ophuls was still in Hollywood being Wanger's surrogate on in post-production. This is correspondence between from Ophuls, what he was doing in that in that function, and, and Wanger, and they were ribbing each other. Does that work time-wise? No, I guess not. Okay. <laughs> that was later, in later correspondence. When, when the film was released in the U.S. Uh, at the same time as it was released in, in, in uh, Britain, and there, there was a good news that, uh, that uh, Ophuls got about England and the bad news that Wanger got in, in Hollywood. And uh, there was the inauspicious occasion when the film premiered, still with soundtrack, not premiered, previewed, with the soundtrack and the image track still separate, uh, and someplace like Redondo. uh, And uh, the film broke. And there were the usual uh, supply of wisecracks, and the audience never quite recovered after that, and it was basically a disaster, and I think, I think it was Mason who said that they all it took some time off their lives, that experience, and uh, it just, in the American release, didn't, didn't do it, uh, um, and Wanger was hurting badly from the Joan of Arc release in, uh, earlier in '48. Fortunately, the film was doing better in Europe, in the Catholic countries in Europe, in particular, Joan of Arc. And uh, 
there was a it was a bitter pill for him to take that this next film is also not gonna make any money. Right. Yeah. So and it all ties in with the situation with Garbo later on when when he couldn't get his financing together to make the Duchess of Langeais. So is the lack of success of The Reckless Moment, is that why Ophuls went back to Europe? No. Uh, he went back to Europe because he was Wanger's partner now. As soon as he, for a period after the end of production, and, uh, and his coming off the contract, the, 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 the contract for, the, for making the film went up to a certain date, and for a while there, he was involved working with, uh, with Gene Havlick on editing. He got along famously with Gene Havlick. And his work with uh, Ermgard von Cube and Alan Vincent, who had been very successful just very recently with Johnny Belinda. And uh, so we're at the top of their game and feeling confident. And uh, Ophuls had a very hard time with her. Alan Vincent, not so much. Uh, he called him the silence clave. <laughs> so, and he didn't, uh, he had, he didn't put up with Ermgard's guff, basically. And it was not a happy relationship. So he went with preparing for that was to be the first European runaway production and Joan Bennett was to have a, a starring role in, in that and then the next the next to be in line for the European period was to be the Greta Garbo's comeback film with the Duchess of Langer and the Greta Garbo was getting a little uptight about the length of time it took between her agreeing to make this film and the time it was it was happening. And so she pressed and ultimately insisted on uh, the Duchess of Langeais uh, coming first. But first we had this long preparation of pretty near, I think it was finished, the, the Ballad of the Source, and then the switch over directly to work with Hal, another screenwriter, Hal Goldman, on uh, The Duchess of Langeais. And that went up to where he left for Europe uh, to go to briefly to France and then to, uh, to Rome for the making of the, the Garbo film. There was no, nothing about not finding work and being unhappy in Hollywood, and uh, you know he, he left on the boat. There was he wasn't thinking about not never coming back. He was really in in his abilities. He he was a terrific screenwriter, uh, which is why he got in so much trouble with these people who thought they knew more than he did. Howard Koch was a good mentor to him, and um, so. He he uh, he expected to uh, make this film in uh, in Italy and then uh, come back or maybe make the the other the next one uh, first and then come back. He kept his house in in Hollywood and uh, his cousin took care of it for him until the spring or summer of 1950. Uh, when after the success of uh, La Ronde, 
which he made on release, on leave of absence from the contract with Wainscher. Okay, and God worked it out so he could make that film. Which, by the way, he had already started uh, setting up during that fallow period between the end of Cod and the beginning of the Reckless Moment. He had all kinds of things in the pot. And uh, not coming back, uh, not doing any more Hollywood films was not part of his plan. And he kept on trying to get a Hollywood assignment. And it looked very promising a number of times, but ultimately it, it just didn't, didn't happen. How did he eventually die? A broken heart, some people say. He uh, had the same kind of troubles uh, with the making of Lola Montez that he had in Hollywood. And he was hired because of his Hollywood experience. It's ironic. The film was not at all well received uh, at the premiere in Paris in in December, just before the holiday in uh, 1955. Uh, Audiences walked out and booed. It was too far ahead of its time, that film. It really was, and people didn't get it. And uh, they actually, in the, the later run after the premiere run, they put a sign on the on the screen saying, this is not the kind of, of film, the way you usually are used, that you're used to. The audiences were warned that this was going to be something completely, completely different. Because of that failure, uh, he had trouble getting assignments. Uh, he did a film called Montparnasse. He said he started setting it up, and his screenplay written, and it was going to go into production. And Jacques Piquet uh, ultimately directed that that screenplay, but in his way. And Max did uh, some radio plays during the production. Right after the production, he had to go on a cure near Baden-Baden to recover from the stress. And uh, then he uh, he got a play. The Marriage of Figaro in Hamburg, uh, the German uh, Schauspielhaus, uh, I think the name of it was. And uh, he directed it like an O'Fool's film, uh, using several of the collaborators he had in, in all the French films. Georges Anankov, the, the, uh, the, the uh, costume designer, for example. He brought the film up to the performance before the premiere. He was there for that, and then they broke for the Christmas holidays, and he went with his wife's home in Dortmund, Germany. While he was gone, he fell ill, and uh, he never came back. He, uh, he was uh, in hospital in Hamburg for three months, and it seemed at times that he was going to recover, and... Uh, and then ultimately he had a second attack and uh, and uh, and died in uh, March 27th of uh, of 1957. It's 2019, and we're talking about a movie that was released in 1949. Why do you think that we're still talking about the reckless moment? Because in so many ways it hits at issues that we're still confronting today. I think the film was lost. 
You know, I mean, I, when I was in, instrumental in the 2002, 2000, early 2003, uh, Ufel's Centennial in Virginia, uh, I was, one of my jobs was to find the film. And uh, it was being distributed by a company that typically, typically distributed television programming. And they didn't know they had it. Had to go through the brass until they finally found it. And we were able to get it. You know, and Columbia had to, uh, Sony Columbia had to give permission uh, as well. And we were able to screen it. And uh, somebody at uh, Berkeley, I think, if I remember correctly, also tried to find it. And so this outfit that owned the film was being peaked that they had something twice in, in a short right. period of time. And so uh, the uh, 75th, Columbia 75th anniversary came in there somewhere and they, they showed it as part of that. And so it sort of brought it back into uh, the spotlight. And, and now everybody loves it. It's just amazing. You know, it's... Uh, it seems to be moving past a uh, letter from an unknown woman in popularity, even. So, nice to see a really nice, uh, really good Blu-ray on it. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's thank you so much for your time. This was oh, great. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's be- it became a conversation yes. more than a, this structured <laughs> more thing. Than 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 more than a Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back and we're talking about The Reckless Moment. Like I always say, any good movie deserves a good remake. And this uh, movie was remade. The Reckless Moment was remade as The Deep End. And it was interesting that this was more of a remake of the movie rather than a new adaptation of the blank wall of the story. Um, Because a lot of those things are right there from the original movie. I mean, the ending. You know, the ending is very different in the original book. There's none of this, well, there's sacrifice, but there's not the car wreck. There's not that kind of thing, but it's there in this version. It's pretty different. It's been updated to the 2000-ish kind of stuff. Um, and I had to say the biggest difference is that we've got a gender swap in the B character. So now rather than it being salacious letters, it is a rather uh, salacious videotape of Ted Derby and Tilda Swinton as Mrs. Harper um, of her son being with uh, Ted. So that I can see being more of a scandal than these letters. So I was kind of actually glad to see that. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way that that those sort of updates are made and I think it makes it feel more plausible because it's hard to imagine somebody getting all bent out of shape about letters in what is it 2001 early 2000s yeah I really couldn't see people giving a shit but when it comes to this is he 17 in this? I mean, that throws a whole different thing on it. Now it's it's uh, Josh Lucas having sex with an underage boy. But yeah. regardless, it still was uh, probably, you know, I can't say that it's not scandalous anymore. It's still going to be scandalous. Not necessarily that it is gay sex, but that it's sex with a minor. You could have translated it so that it would be maybe about emails instead of letters, but... 
having it be actual videotape, I think, gives her such a more intense motivation. But I think it also makes it more of an external thing and less about her driving herself crazy and feeling guilty and having it be this sort of anxiety spiral in her head. What are they going to do with that tape? I mean, they can't show it. They can't show it on the news. I guess they could, like, sell it to some, like, you know, sleazy porn dealer. But, you know, I agree. It's it's a much more updated and, um, you know, you know, more imminent sort of threat of scandal. In a way, I feel like it kind of takes away from the power of just the anxiety being the main motivation. I appreciated that this takes place in Reno and Lake Tahoe. So it's kind of a nice nod to the reckless moment with the whole idea of B going away to Lake Tahoe. Uh, I had no idea where one city was in relation to another. So thank, thank you, Google Maps, for that. And this time, Tom is in the Navy, I guess, because he's on the USS Constellation, and they can't get a hold of him a lot of times. So, again, we're going back to that war idea, which was interesting, that we can return to that in 2001, since we've been fighting the forever war since, you know, uh, whenever George Bush II took office. I guess that was right around 2001, wasn't it? I'm still actually stuck on this thing you brought up, Mike. Since it is underage, the the son is underage, wouldn't the video be more damning to the Ted Darby character? Yeah. He doesn't want that to get out. That doesn't make sense. Well, I am curious if he is underage or not, because I know he the, the son is getting ready to go to college. So he could be 18, but I don't know. Because I was 18 when I got to college. Because there's this whole thing now, it's not art school like B was going to it was music school and some of these things some of the symbolism in this movie it's a little thick i mean the whole a idea little. of all right it's it's a lot thick <laughs> i mean when she goes to visit darby at the the deep end club and it's all this nautical theme. And then when she arrives home, that her her younger son is filling up an aquarium right there on the front porch. I'm just like, wow, we're going to get a lot of water symbolism here in this movie and a lot of things to do with this. And, of course, the idea of her sinking the body and, you know, it, like living right there on the lake and stuff. I mean, it's really, really put on thick here this is done by the same two guys who did suture which i really liked and we talked a little bit about when we were talking about i think it was uh maybe on the seconds episode but um this one doesn't seem as artfully done let's say it feels a little too self-conscious a lot of times i think if i hadn't seen either the reckless moment or read the book i might have enjoyed this movie more it's really hard to compare yourself to the reckless moment if you're remaking it. And there's just lots of things that don't quite stand up. Like, I, d I don't think, I mean, Tilda Swinton is, is, is an amazing, amazing actor. Um, but her character didn't seem as well conceived. Um, you know, as you were saying, Sam, like the anxieties aren't there. Um, I didn't, you know, sense the same sort of chemistry between her and the Donnelly character. It is really tough to get behind that actor, Goran Vishnik. Oh, I think. man. He's so wooden. 
he well and he always plays a scumbag so it's not like i really want to you know have anything to do with him they seem to got have gotten rid of some of the class issues in this movie it's just like they seem to have a lot of money and she doesn't seem to be having those sorts of like struggles about you know getting by that joan bennett did yeah i'm sorry i just don't like this movie it it has this sort of it's one of those things where I probably would have liked it if I hadn't seen The Reckless Moment first. And if it didn't try so hard, like if this had been less sort of beating you over the head with how artful its symbolism is, and if it had embraced more sort of being a melodrama thriller and had sort of like a Lifetime vibe or a made-for-TV movie vibe, I probably would be all in. But it's it's almost like it takes itself too seriously and then just comes up short. Yeah, the symbolism, it's a, it's a lot. I mean, her having the red hair and then having the red coat, and of course I'm thinking the red coat from... Don't look um, now. Don't look now. And then there are times where she very purposefully does not have the red coat on or where she leaves it someplace and then that becomes something. It's a little much. They really, yeah, they should have. I mean, that Josh Lucas's license plate is six feet below. It's like, what the hell, man? Yeah, I just, I I feel like they did spend a lot of time trying to translate certain elements, like we said, with the videotape and the gender reversal. It was all very thoughtful, but it's like they spent too much time focusing on the wrong things. Like, that's not ultimately what makes the movie, what makes The Reckless Moment so incredible. It's about her feeling like a prisoner and being a prisoner in this domestic space. And it's like, that's totally gone. Yeah, I don't get that trapped feeling. No. We could just pretend that it doesn't exist. Like I do with most remakes. (laughs) So if you're listening to this at home, we weren't just talking just now. No. It was a figment of your imagination. Stop being so paranoid. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. You think we can do this? Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. The best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him. Just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think I think will be used to hurt these two young people. No responsible. I'm not responsible. You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. 
Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. Yes. How'd you get this phone number? We prepare a full dossier and everyone. It's terrific. <laughs> the bugger got bugged, eh? Do you have secrets, Harry? I know you do. Tell me about yourself. Your secrets. I don't have any secrets. Don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. These tapes are dangerous. Come on, Harry. Show and tell. How do you do it? Why are you asking me all these questions? Gene Hackman is Harry Call in The Conversation. There is nothing private about The Conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? That's right, we'll be back next week. Speaking of paranoia, we'll be back next week with a look at Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Colin and Sam. So, Colin, what is happening in your world, sir? Not a ton. I'm I'm going back to school and hoping to get better job in the future. But if I could, I would love to plug um, some work that my friends have done. Uh, our mutual friend Lou Boxer and Matthew Sorrento have just relaunched the Noir Con zine, um, retreatsfromoblivion.com, with a uh, previously unavailable Charles Williford short story called Sugar Water. So big congrats to the two of them for getting this back off the ground. Yeah, I was on the Charles Williford Facebook page debating people whether that was really a Charles Williford story. I'm like, yes. Yes, it is. Nothing like arguing with people on the internet. Oh my god, yes. I mean, that's it's from Betsy, so I think she's probably the final word. She probably knows something, a thing or two. Yep. Cullen, where is my A Man's Not a Train song? I was waiting for that cover. Ugh, I was talking to Andy about it the other day. We're gonna do it. Sometimes it just takes us a little while. We never had that recording session we thought we were going to. Sam, what is happening in Philadelphia, ma'am? I am always working on all the things, and I'm usually at a point where the current thing that I'm working on hasn't been announced, so I can't talk about it. So <laughs> it sometimes is hard for me to do like instant recall of what I should be plugging. But off the top of my head, for Kino, I just did a commentary for the Melville film on Flick. Uh, that will be out soon. Yay! I love that <laughs> I movie. I love that movie. It's so good. I wrote a book on Fritz Long's M that has just come out now. And if for some reason you have not purchased or seen The Reckless Moment, the Indicator release I did an essay for, I think that came out, I don't know, I have no concept of time anymore. It came out a little while ago. Um, so that's, I think, all that I can remember right now. I am so glad that your M book is out. It is such a fantastic read. Thank you. You're the first person who read it. So thank you for reading it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, well, other that, than the editor. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I feel very fortunate about that. 
Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.